0: Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1 once again this morning. Peter, unlike Paul, as he writes, really strings together thought after thought after thought, dependent upon the thought that precedes. And certainly Paul does this, but Paul's easier to preach, quite frankly, because you take a portion and then you could speak on that, and it always embodies its own thought almost, and you can refer back. But Peter, it's absolutely uh, essential that we continually be reminded of what he just says before it. He writes similar to the way I think he probably talked, and that he just really just said it. And then it just strings together, and we take a portion today, but I, I want us to be connected back to uh, where we have come. The book starts, this epistle of Second Peter, with reminding us of our standing in Christ. Now everything works in relationship to our standing in Christ. We have to recognize that... Our righteous standing is because of Christ's righteousness. As God looks at us, if we trust in him, if we are united to Christ by faith, God sees the righteousness of Christ in you, and that's why he accepts you. Now, because of that sure standing, we are given encouragement to live out that standing by a series of uh, special qualities, spiritual qualities that are enumerated by Peter. Then, he then says that these qualities will also help make you sure that you're called and elect. They help with assurance, and every Christian wants to know for sure. And as we live out these fruits, then we can be sure. It's not that we live out the fruits and then gain salvation, but rather we live out the fruits as an evidence of a lively faith. Then it comes to the words we're about to read, which show into Peter's heart as a pastor. And this week we might call the pastor's passion and purpose as it relates to Believers being assured of their salvation that they would persevere, next week we might say it's the pastor's power, which is the word of God. So here is hear God's word as I read Second Peter one twelve through fifteen. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let us pray. Lord God, you have given us your holy word. We are so thankful for it. And we just sang, Lord. We asked for you to speak. And all that we say of you, that it would be according to your word, that all of our teaching, all my teaching this morning would be according to your word, so that your lambs may know their own true shepherd's voice. Lord, this is the driving passion and purpose of Peter here, and it ought to be my driving passion and purpose, the elders of this church, it ought to be their driving passion and purpose, that the sheep of God would know their own true shepherd's voice wherever he leads them go, And in his love, rejoice. Pray this in his name. Amen. Peter, a man of many identities. Peter's a fisherman first, right? Not the best fisherman, we find out. He was then called to be a disciple, a learner, one who followed Jesus and learned. He was also called to the inner circle of Christ. He was one of the few guys that had a regular private audience with Jesus out of the twelve. We then also find that he is commissioned as an apostle. After falling and failing miserably, God restores him and gives him the gift of apostleship, given only to a, a few men in all the history of the world. Right around the epoch of time, his fellow disciples, and then of course, Paul added that. Matthias added to that. Just a few men ever called apostles. Peter was one. But I believe based on what Jesus says to Peter in John chapter 21, that the main calling Peter has, which is so transferable to us today, is his calling as a pastor of the sheep. In chapter 21 of John, the last words that are, some of the last words that are spoken by Jesus to uh, the disciples, but then Peter in particular, at least that are recorded for us, happen in this fashion. He speaks and says, feed my sheep. He says it three different times in three different ways. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. So really, for all the titles we give Peter, we will have to say specifically that he is called to be a pastor. In that light, when he speaks here, I don't have the gift of apostleship. I have the deposit of what God brought forth through the apostles, the word of God. But my passion, my purpose have to be driven the same way Peter's was, the same way Paul's was. You see, Jesus is the great shepherd of the church, but he appoints under-shepherds. And this is a great grace to me because if Jesus was my lone example... Uh, a shepherd, I would feel like I fall miserably short, and I do. But he appointed under shepherds, the apostles, that I can essentially take my cue from as they were sinners too and called to consistent repentance themselves, looking and pointing towards Christ. What did Paul say? Follow me as I follow Christ. And that's the role, that's the passion, that's the purpose of the pastor and the elders of the church. Now today throughout I'm going to say pastor, but recognize in our church we believe that there's an office called elder and there are those who have a vocational calling to it that are given to the preaching and teaching of the word. That's who we call ministers. But we're elders together with the ruling elders of the church, and so I'm using this term really meaning both things. Shepherds of the church, pastors of the church. You know, pastor itself is from the Latin word, which means shepherd. And so that's uh, the meaning behind the phrase and why uh, I believe this text, among other things, tells us or shows us that it is the passion, of the biblical pastor to help God's people persevere in the faith and holiness to the end. This sermon could certainly be addressed to a group of pastors, no doubt. However, this is also for the people of God. In fact, uh, the people of God have to hold pastors and shepherds accountable. But the people of God are also given uh, the command to obey and to submit to the leadership. And so it's important for them to recognize what the passion and purpose is of the pastorate so that they can then honor God by obeying and following and supporting that. And so this is why it's important for all of us to hear what is the passion of the biblical pastor and the purpose. Also, let's look at this text in three different uh, ways. First, I think you can see very clearly that the biblical pastor, as Peter exemplifies, has a driving, just a driving passion for God's people to be established in the truth. Look at verse twelve. Therefore, I attend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I'm in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. Uh, I used to think that everybody had that same sense of discontent about where they were personally and where the church is. And I think to a degree every believer does. But there's just something you might even say a little unusual about the person called to be a pastor. Because they're just constantly discontent. I hope not sinfully discontent. But just in the sense that they want so much more for the sheep of God. Much of their discontent comes from their own fallibility their own failures this sense that part of the reason why you're not advancing more might be because of me uh, that shepherd wise i'm holding you back and that drives me to christ and drives me to drive you to christ it's a driving sense a passion you might even say uh, without the negative connotations an obsession to see god's people go hard after him and not settle for mediocrity there's so many mediocre people in the world i don't want you to be mediocre and I want to give my life just to seeing you come up above all that for the glory of Christ. That's the heart of the pastor for his people, the shepherds for the people. Look at the language in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, speaking back again to those spiritual qualities mentioned earlier, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. In other words, I know you know much, brothers and sisters. I know you've got a, a good base knowledge. And this word established comes from the word that means strengthened. It doesn't mean complete or, or just finished or perfected. It means you have been strengthened. So in other words, you've been exposed to and you're growing. And it's an ongoing dynamic thing. You grow. Uh, but you don't just stop there. I mean, a building doesn't just get built and then no maintenance. It's consistent maintenance. doing a lot of the same things over and over again. This is not a picture of a professor like you might have had in high school or college who you could tell they're tenured, uh, they're just counting their days to get done, they walk in the classroom, they give you the info that might be on the state test, and then they walk out. I gave it to them. I mean, they heard it in my class. If they didn't get it right, hey, that's their problem. I, I said it. I mean, I had teachers like this, you know, that would just, you could tell they were just counting their days and didn't care about how you grasped or comprehended anything. That's not what Peter says. That's not the pastor's heart. He says, I intend always to remind you. He doesn't just say, well, I told you once, you should all listen. He says, I want to always remind you, even though you know them and are established in them. I think it right. As long as I'm alive, as long as I have uh, blood running through my veins and breath in my lungs, I will be working to remind you and to stir you up by way of reminder. Please notice this phrase, to stir up. Uh, this connotes the idea of raising the awareness of people who might be prone to forget. Now, you'll also notice in this text, if you look at the whole of it, 12 through 15, there are three vivid uh, vivid calls to remind. I will remind, I'll remind, and you will recall after I'm gone. So there's this need for a reminder. Now, why is this so vivid to me? Because I'm forgetful. Uh, I literally pick up a text and study it. I've studied it before. In fact, Second Peter I have worked on uh, with, with a little bit of, of, of uh, thoroughness before and it teaching through a study. But you know, if I read it again, I've got to read it over again because I forget it. Well, if I forget it, I know you must too at times. So you've got to hear it over and over again. I mean, how many parents feel like all you ever do is nag? That's, I mean, well, I feel like that, that's my whole, some total of my relationship with my kids today was telling them over and over and over and over. But how many of you look back at your past and, with fondness and think of your parents in terms of them being nags? I bet you most of you don't remember that. You just remember they were a good parent or they weren't. You think in a macro level about it because you know along the way they had to do those things to remind, to remind, to remind, to remind. And the reason why they're so special to you is because they didn't stop reminding. Now, you don't remember all the particulars, but you know in the big picture is one of nurture, one of moving you towards a certain end. And this is why reminding is so vital, the ministry of reminding for the pastor. And stirring up is one more than teaching. Now, there's a difference between teaching and preaching, and maybe this is it, stirring you up. Teaching is giving you what the Bible says, and there's a definite place for that in the life of the church, the teaching of just straight doctrine. However, preaching, I think, is that, plus stirring it up. Now, if we're honest, I'll be honest, I could bring a tape every week and press play, and you can hear way better preachers than you'll hear Tony. Promise. I could read you some sermons. Could, way better preachers than the history of the world, and will continue to be. The difference is, right here in this body, as your pastor, as Nathan, is as your pastor, the elders, is your pastors, shepherds, we know you. And that makes us able to help with the application of the word, the truth, to stir it up. To make a good sauce, and that's important, everyone must know, to make a good sauce, you don't just put the ingredients on and then walk away, do you? You've got to stir it up. You've got to mix it up. You've got to make it taste like it's supposed to taste by bringing one thing over to the next and moving it and mixing it and they move and congeal it together and then you have something that's completed, strengthened. That's what stirring it up means and peter understood this i'm going to remind you i'm going to remind you as long as i'm alive i'm going to remind you and i'm going to stir you up by way of reminding again let me ask a couple questions and answer them by the text why does the pastor have to be about reminding the people of god he says i intend to remind you of these qualities well the people have been established in it but because of our own sinfulness it's are, are we're battling consistently and constantly we have to be reminded of the simplest of truths uh, it's such a blessing to me when you come to me especially those of you who are more mature than me in the faith and there are many of you walk with the Lord a long time and you'll come and say to me boy pastor there's something you said and it'll be a very simple point about just the comprehension of God's grace to you a sinner you've been walking with Christ for many years and you say at that time that that hits you again afresh that day That's why we have to be reminded. Someone who's walked with Christ for his whole life, her whole life, and they still need to remember the gospel of grace. Constant, consistent reminders are always part of the driving passion of the pastor, the biblical pastor who wants to see God's people be assured of their salvation, that they would then persevere all the way to the end of their days in trusting Christ. Repetition, though, another important part of it, is just it's just a great teaching mechanism that Jesus did over and over again. One author writing about this, a use of repetition or reminding in preaching and teaching, says this, repetition expands our capability of recall. Recovering spiritual truth demands repetition and use. The more you hear, think through, and apply spiritual truth, the more it begins to dominate your thinking. Eventually, you will react involuntarily in the proper spiritual manner to any situation because a particular spiritual principle has become so much a part of you. Now, I don't mean to say that it's just something you plug in like some computer language and it just happens. Uh, you may end up wrestling, you know, but it'll come to your mind. It'll, uh, you'll remember. I mean, there are things that convict me now that didn't convict me before because I've been exposed over and over, and I know that I should be doing differently. When you think of how important recall is, if you've ever had a chance to sing before people, play an instrument before people, teach or talk before people, you probably had this happen, and it's happened to me many times in my life. I looked over and studied my notes and, and considered what I was going to say, and I got up and all of a sudden I looked at you, and it just went, my mind went blank. It hasn't happened as much because I've had more practice, but I still have to prepare by at least reading through my notes, my extended outline five or six times, to really feel like if I were just shocked, I'd still remember it. You know what I'm saying? We had a preaching teacher that used to tell us that I should be able to wake you up at 3 a.m. and you should be able to give me your proposition immediately. And he means it because you've got to know it so well that you are just able to say, you just kind of exhale it. But yet you know how quickly something can come and you blank. You're going to make a presentation in your company and you were, pro- you were confident going in. And then boom, the PowerPoint goes on and you just don't remember why you put that bullet point up there. Reminding is so important. It's what helps us when we come down to the moment of, of just acting almost involuntarily because we know and we've heard over and over again. And look at the text again with me. You'll see, verse 12, I intend to always remind you of these qualities. Verse 13, to stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Ministry of reminding is a huge part of the outflow or the tool the pastor will use to see people's, God's people established in the truth and persevere. But another question I'd ask is, what does the pastor have to remind the people of? Specifically, in this context, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. What qualities? Well, back at verse 5. Look at verse 5, so you might be reminded... For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self control, self control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and in increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. He feels he's got to say this over and over and over again, and I think he's right. In fact, he's saying what Paul says in so many words in Galatians when talking about the fruits of the Spirit. Paul's saying what has been said in the body of the whole Old Testament, if you lived out the positive connotations of the, the Ten Commandments, they are fruits that the Spirit give us to do. It's a unified message of virtue that is lived out in light of who we are in Christ. And we have to be reminded of that over and over and over again. And so... That's why, or that's what we have to be reminded of, these virtues that show, make our calling and election sure, prove that God's done something supernatural in us, that he saved us from our sin and given us a new nature. In fact, we should expect that what Peter says would comply with what Paul says, and it does, because Paul says in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, two of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament, "...him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ." For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The driving a passion for the pastor. The biblical pastor, following an example of the apostles, and ultimately the example of Jesus, is for God's people to be established in the truth. But secondly, look at verse 13 and verse 14, where we see that the biblical pastor, as exemplified by Peter, has a personal sense of urgency. He knows his time is limited. And verse 13... I think it right as long as I am in this body. That's clearly showing that he understands that at death his soul will depart to be with the Lord. As long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. My time is short and as long as I've got breath in my lungs, I will stir you up by way of reminder. Verse 14, kind of chilling words. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. He shows that he is keenly aware of his frailty. And this is very unlike the same Peter who was trying to cover himself uh, in front of a servant girl when Jesus was arrested. Different Peter, not the self-preserving Peter before the resurrection and ascension. Now we have a Peter who in the book of Acts preaches the most unseeker-sensitive sermon ever preached. To the Jews, you killed him. Certainly there are some in that audience who are probably part of the crowd that said, crucify him, you killed him, Peter says. His whole life is transformed now, but he knows it's frail he knows it could end. So he comes at ministry now with a sense of urgency. I only got so much time. And even if I live a long life by human standards, I only have so much time. And so he goes forth in that light, and he has a personal sense of urgency, knowing that his time is limited. There's a bit of a chilling reference here I think you probably recognize. And it comes from this phrase in verse 14, 14 whereas the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Now, it could be that Christ has revealed this to him more specifically somewhere around this time frame, and we think that Peter wrote this book probably around 62 or 63 A.D., but more likely it's a reference to John 21. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter in the same passage where he tells Peter to be a shepherd, to feed my sheep. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So there seems to be a reference to the specifics of Peter's death. And there's a lot of history and and somewhat legend about Peter, but let me just give you a few facts that we know based on what history has said. ...about the death of Peter and how it relates here. And remember, it's about his sense of urgency that he knows he's frail. He knows that he is mortal. The earliest mention we have of Peter's death in an official sense is from Clement... ...who was then the Bishop of Rome, the the head elder, if you will, at Rome... ...between 88 and 97. He wrote to the Corinthian church uh, that Peter and Paul were in Rome when they died. That they were executed. So it seems as though this happened around the time of Nero... Dionysius, who was a bishop of Corinth, he bears the following testimony in the early second century, where refers to Peter and Paul, quote, "...both of these, having planted the church at Corinth, likewise instructed us, and having in the, manner, in the same manner taught in Italy, they then suffered martyrdom about the same time." So most uh, historians narrow it down to the time of Nero, which would have been about 64, just a year, maybe two years after this book. Tertullian, the beginning of the third century. He writes, or mentions the death of Peter and Paul as occurring under, under Nero, and then Eusebius, considered probably the first official historian of the church in the early 4th century, writes this, Thus Nero, publicly announcing himself as chief enemy of God, was led on in his fury to slaughter the apostles. Paul is therefore said to have been beheaded in Rome, and Peter to have been crucified under him. And this account is confirmed by the fact that the names of Peter and Paul still remain in the cemeteries of, this city, of that city, even to that day, and then in, later on in Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History, he writes, quoting another early church father who says Peter appears to have preached through Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and the Jews that were scattered abroad. Who also, finally coming to Rome, was crucified with his head downward, having requested of himself to suffer in this way. History seems to point to the idea that he was crucified like Christ, but some witnesses say. He did not feel worthy of dying the same death of his Savior, so asked to be hung upside down. That cannot be absolutely confirmed, but the date and time in his martyrdom seems clear that it happened around the time of Nero, just a year or two after the writing of this. He knew his time was short. He could have lived 30 more years, but his time still would have been short. It doesn't matter if you're 60 when you die or 90 when you die. It will all seem very fast when the day comes. And a pastor knows, by God's grace many times, that his time is short. This last week marked one year anniversary from the time that Nathan and I had an accident that very easily could have killed us. Uh, we went off the road at 70 miles an hour backwards and flipped two and a half times up, landed upside up 10 feet above the road on a rocky embankment. And the whole, if you saw, if Nathan was any taller than five six, he would not be here. Uh, the, totally crushed in the cab. I remember the most terrifying moment of my life to date, was calling out wondering if he was still there or if he was thrown out of the vehicle. I mean, the only thing worse I could have thought of dying, not personal, but just what it means for my family and so forth and the hardship that brings would have been the idea that I'd live and he die in that accident. Uh, I knew I was frail before that. I still know today. But s- instances like that give me a new sense of urgency about what I am to be about. Not a less respect for the sovereignty of God. And I know God doesn't need Tony to advance the kingdom. But personally, there's a sense of urgency, knowing I only have so much time. In St. Louis, our pastor of three years, Doug Mady, was probably the most hyperactive individual I've ever met in my life. He, he was just constantly moving in motion, and we just, Sherry and I would comment after, I don't know where that guy gets his energy, he's just constantly just excited about everything. He preached every sermon like it was the last sermon he preached. He only finished seminary maybe seven years before us. He wasn't that much older. He wasn't even 40 years old when he was our, our pastor. Uh, but several times, he was so faithful about the ministry of reminding. He preached through Jeremiah. If you read Jeremiah, it's a great book, but it basically says the same thing over and over again. Judah sins, and then God disciplines, and they come back. And So every week, for, I don't know, 22 weeks, he preached through a section that was sounded the same every week. And I'm telling you, Doug got up there like it was the first time he ever preached every time, faithfully reminding us. I remember him challenging me personally about taking a Sabbath from my studies on Sunday. A simple reminder that I already knew But he reminded me faithfully. I remember him being really the person who convinced my wife of of the biblical nature of covenant baptism. I've been preaching it at her for five years before. I don't understand what the problem is. But the pastor, in his gentle reminders of the theological underpinnings, convinced her. Faithful reminding. Now, I'm not saying that Doug knew his time was short. But we were not out of seminary two years. We got a phone call to find out that while jogging, he died. Jogging around a track four miles every other day. Picture of health in cardiac arrest and was dead. I'm so grateful that he was so faithful in the simple reminding ministry over and over that continues to help me recall it after he's departed. That's the driving passion that the pastor understands. Time goes so fast. And the stage of life I'm in makes me refer to all sorts of theologians. And one theologian that says it well is Dr. Seuss. How did it get to be so late so soon? It's night before it's afternoon. December's here before it's June. My goodness, how the time has flown. How did it get to be so late so soon? There's definitely a personal sense of urgency for the pastor. But you know what else Scripture reveals and Peter reveals? That there is also also a long-term corporate perspective. Personally, I feel urgent, but corporately, I believe in the long-plotting method of how to preach and teach and minister. Uh, There's an urgency, yet there's a methodical nature about ministry. Uh, There's a pressing need, yet there's precision that's called for. Uh, There's a criticalness about it, yet there's carefulness that must happen. Uh, There's an insistent nature, I must have with you, at the same time, I have to be meticulous about what particularly I say to you. The biblical pastor has a long-term corporate perspective concerning ministry of the word. I would submit to you as I head into this point, this is one of the things so desperately missing, especially from the American, I gotta have it now church. Listen to what... Uh, The text says in 12, because you'll see that there are no shortcuts to seeing the people of God established in the truth. There are no shortcuts in maintaining the establishment of God's people. Tending the sheep of God demands urgency, yes, but careful, methodical, meticulous, nurturing as well. Verse 12, therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He's explicit about his method. I intend always to remind you. A pastor comes to understand there's a need of regular, constant, perpetual reminders concerning the word of God. This resonates with me because I remember specifically, uh, Peter is written to the church in general and has a kind of a spot here where a pastor can really learn about passion and purpose and the people of God can be made aware. But Timothy was written primarily to a pastor and the people of God, again, gleaned from this. But the whole book was written to guide a man who was helping to develop and plan and plant a church. And those early churches would be models of other churches. So they're very important what happened at that level. Thus, the apostles were there. But listen to what Paul says to Timothy and then do your best to see how this should live itself out today in the life of our church and the church in general. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 11, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. That's regularity. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, or in the older versions, on your doctrine. Persist in this. That's not just try it and see if it works, but persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now hear me very closely on this. I think one of the biggest tragedies in the church's life is the pastor as the CEO model. That is not from God. It is not my job to run a corporation it's my job to remind i know that i am called to have a vision for things and a mission for things and i must be purpose-driven but my purpose is to remind you of the gospel and it can't ever stop And the gospels not just one simple phrase it's the whole counsel of god from beginning to the end i think in connection with this tragic event in the life of the church especially the american church is the the rise of the prominence of the so-called topical sermon. The topical sermon itself is a departure from the regular, consistent exposition of the Word of God, and it has caused the church at large to be biblically illiterate. Oh, people know how to handle their funds. People know how to pray the prayer of Jabez. They know how to do this, and they know how to do that, but they couldn't tell you anything about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they couldn't tell you from beginning to end of Scripture when False teaching comes whether it's false or not because they only know how to deal with their relationships based on what that pastor gave in their cleverness with some verses attached. I am not saying there's no reason for topical sermons. We should preach topics and relate them to scripture, but that ought not be the steady diet of the church. In fact, this is uh, historically, this is an anomaly. It always used to be where uh, the church in its most healthy states would open up the word of God and expose it. Uh, when Romanism came in, they weighed so heavily on the sacrament that the word went away and it was all about the sacrament. Well, the Reformation brought a right correction to the word and sacrament. Uh, but when those two came together and then we get into the post-enlightenment age and all this stuff and people want entertainment, they won't listen for more than 20 minutes, we change it to topical sermons. We only meet once a week, Sunday morning, and it becomes some kind of little pep talk on how you ought to live your life this week when the most healthy time in the church's life was persistent reminder of what the word was, exposition in the morning, perhaps a topic addressed at night, more exposition during the week, and this was consistent. Now we're lucky if we can ask people for 20 little minutes to listen during a Sunday morning. Mark Deaver, who writes on this subject, also recognizes, uh, really, we're in a crisis. We are in an actual crisis right now in the life of the church in America. Listen to what Deaver says, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Why don't we just quit preaching? Considering the widespread popularity of engaging anecdotes and vivid vignettes, wouldn't it be more effective to simply tell a few captivating stories on Sunday morning? And why think specifically about expositional preaching, that brand so often associated with excruciating boredom and half-empty pews? If our fast-paced society of sports tickers and soundbite infotainment, can we really expect anyone to have the patience for a serious exposition of an ancient text? In an age that has developed a pungent distaste for the exclusivity of religious truth, how can the authoritative tone of expositional preaching hold any promise at all? In a voyeuristic culture, inundated with glossy magazines and risque sitcoms, maybe pastors would be wise to modernize, quit the text-centered approach, and accommodate to our culture's predilection for the visual. So what do you think? Why preach? I would suggest that's essentially what's happened at large. And that's why we're so terribly ineffective in the culture. That's why the average person who can go, say they've gone to church 20, for 20 years doesn't know anything about biblical literalness, literateness. It's because of that very kind of preaching that has brought us to this place. Prayer works, I read as a title. So prayer works. What would that sermon look like? It would be prayer works, and the pastor tell about how it works sometime for him and attach some scriptures to it. Why must I forgive that person? Now, are these things in the Bible? Absolutely. But I have faith that as we walk through the Bible together, they'll come up. And at that moment, I can address them with the other scripture. Not that I'll just tell you some testimonies of what happened to me. And then you go home and what do you remember? What happened to Tony that, and how it was proved true to him? Not what text to go to. The pastor's driving passion is for you to persevere. I'm convinced you only persevere as you have the word of God that you're feeding on. Not my vignettes. There are many benefits for all of us when we preach this way. For me, the pastor, selfishly, it releases me from what some people call Saturday night fever. What do I preach tomorrow? I know what I'm preaching tomorrow, Monday, when I start studying. I already know what I'm doing next. And I'm not picking out some sin you all are committing and then going to go do the sermon on it. Boy, I know someone has a problem with covetousness. This morning, we're going to speak on covetousness. And then three people wonder if it's talking about them. You can't wonder that. I'm just going through the text. It releases me from this way. It releases me from the likelihood of... It releases me to preach the whole counsel of God, not just certain texts. In fact, it forces me to study difficult, often neglected texts for myself. In other words, there are many verses we're going to get to in 2 Peter where I'm struggling with myself. How do I explain this? Well, I've got to struggle with it, and I've got to share this struggle with you rather than skip it. it increases the word's command, the Bible's command, and over me by giving me a broader exposure to the probing sword of the scripture. It increases my God-given uh, prophetic authority because it's on the word not on me increases the trustworthiness of the pastor's preaching in the eyes of you the congregation when you know it's the word i'm bound to not me not myself but this benefits you too brothers and sisters in fact if i were looking for a church uh, i'd have a list of things i'd look for but one would definitely be a commitment to exposition the congregation is released from a slavery to my personal hobby horse when it's exposition you won't have to hear a sermon on the end times every week. You won't hear a sermon on tithing every week. We need a few more of those probably. But at any rate, not every week will we have that. Because it's not a hobby horse I'm on. You know we're going through the text. This will increase your knowledge of God and his word by broadening your exposure as we walk through the different parts of scripture. It increases your trust in the inspiration, the inerrancy, the clarity, the sufficiency of scripture. becomes so clear when you keep hearing the reminders among all these different authors who are writing. Increases your trust in preaching and teaching in general. It decreases the likelihood that you will be deceived by false teaching. It will function for you also, and finally, as a model for the the study you can do on your own. There's nothing I do here. Now, I may have to teach it. Maybe I have an ability to teach it that not everyone has. I think a lot of people have it. I mean, every mom is a teacher as far as I've ever seen. But point being is you don't have to necessarily present it, but you can look at the text and you, with your own work and labor and the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life, you could come to understand that text and follow a similar model to what you see here. It gives you a model, in essence, for studying Scripture yourself and for your family. Reformation will come, brothers and sisters, when the church returns to faithful, regular exposition of the Word. If you go to China right now and you ask someone who's sneaking around trying to have church service, what kind of sermons do you think they're preaching there? Do do you really think it's about... Your finances? You got an hour before a guard comes by? What are you going to look at? What does the Bible say? That's what I want to know. We're just not desperate enough. We've got all sorts of time to talk about this stuff. As opposed to just having a sense of urgency. And man, I only got so much time. I just want to hear what God says. So let's walk through it. That's the urgency needed once again. And this is why verse 15 in closing says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. What are these things? The spiritual qualities that he's reminding us of that help us be assured that we are called and elect, and our calling and election is based on union with Christ. That's what he is about. This is why he reminds and reminds and reminds, so that if he's gone, the people will stand firm because they will recall these things. It is the passion of the biblical pastor to help God's people persevere in the faith and holiness to the end, and I have no greater tool than the word of God. This week is the passion and purpose of the pastor. Next week is the power of the pastor, which is the word preached. Let us pray.